We serve a God of abundance, yet you're still living paycheck to paycheck. We serve a God of order, yet your house always seems to be a mess. You feel unappreciated and overwhelmed just trying to keep up. Does the noise of life drown out the voice of God? Hi, my name is Gina Morton, a Catholic wife, mom, and declutter coach. Welcome to Pruning to Prosper, the podcast where we talk about all the practical things to run your home smoothly. Clutter, money, mindset, and yes, everyone still wants to eat. So we'll talk about that too. That nagging in your heart is God telling you he has more for you than just trying to keep up. If you're ready to get uncomfortable, get brave, and see what you can do, then grab your garden shears because you're about to prune away the stuff so you can prosper into the woman God has called you to be. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Pruning to Prosper. I'm your host, Gina Morton, and today we are finishing up our little mini series on college with an interview with my husband, Dennis Morton, and his experience with ROTC. Dennis, how are you? And thank you for joining Pruning to Prosper podcast for the first time. Oh, glad to be here. <laughs> so tell us, first of all, um, a little bit about yourself, what you do for a living, where are you from? Um, I guess the best way to describe where I'm from and where I am now is it's kind of a meandering arc of a career. So um, let's work our way backwards. So I, I work in the finance profession. I own a financial advisory firm, but I arrived there in a um, very unique way that I was a history major in college uh, on an ROTC scholarship for the Army and uh, proceeded to become a Patriot missile officer for four years before migrating my way into finance and becoming an advisor. So I always joke that just like the high school guidance counselor said, I went from history to shooting Patriot missiles to finance. But it's it's a path that I really have come to appreciate and even advocate for as people think about their, um, their education route and their career route is to not make too many assumptions about the, the, the seamless path along the way. Yeah, that... You probably don't know at 18 how that history degree is really going to play out. I'm glad I didn't. I'm so glad. I mean, honestly, I just knew that I could be a history major because I was guaranteed to have a job from the Army once I graduated college. Okay. So that was, that's actually one of my questions I was going to ask you. Um, But let's not jump ahead too much. Tell us where you're from uh, in the United States. (laughs) I I I grew up in the Baltimore area, although Baltimore people would say I'm from you know, the rural county areas. So we lived in kind of a rural part of Maryland outside of Baltimore. And okay. I lived there for the first 21 years of my life. Okay. And what kind of high school did you go to? What was your high school experience? So what I kind went, of student were you? Um, decent student, not as focused as I could have been. But I, I went to an um, a all-male Catholic high school, uh, Calvert Hall College High School in, in Towson, Maryland. Uh, my father had gone there. I'd um, just uh, grown up around the place. And um, I was a decent student but I don't think I had an idea of what I wanted to do with that. Like even, you know, at 17 or 18, as, as guys I knew were looking at colleges, they had a sense that they wanted to be in medicine or engineering or uh, an attorney, something like that. I didn't feel any gravity toward a profession. I knew what I liked to study. I knew what I liked to read about. But beyond that, I really didn't know that much. And I think that showed up a little bit in my focus and my grades and other things is that I just really was looking for a path. Mm-hmm. But when you say you were a decent student, you were National Honor Society, correct? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's better than I was. Honey. Okay. <laughs> That's pretty good. Um, okay. So then 
both of your parents were college educated, um, you know, before they had children, before they were married, they actually met in college, which I think was pretty rare to have parents, both parents college educated when we were growing up. Neither of mine were. Right. Um, So was it always expected that you would also go to college? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't, I've told this story already in the podcast. It really wasn't even, it was never discussed in my family that I would even go to college. So um, I, I imagine if both of your parents are graduates, then yes, you would be expected to continue that, um, that course. So with that, what, what was talked about? Was it talked about that you would go to anywhere you wanted to go? Was it, you know, the sky's the limit? What, what did your family talk about when the college choice came up? I, I think, I mean, we started going to college fairs really early on. I remember, I think my sophomore year of high school, we started going to the college fair at school and, and walking around and looking at different places and, you know, gathering a, a lot of books and looking at things, but there was no real direction. Now, I'm the oldest of four, so this was our first rodeo. Mm-hmm. And I think, so both of my parents went to college. They went to the same school uh, in Baltimore. It was, at the time, probably a couple thousand dollars, you know, a few thousand dollars for the total education. In the late 80s, early 90s, I think was really when the geometric explosion of college costs was started to kick in. Mm-hmm. And I think it took us all off guard a little bit just how much this was going to cost you know the same i I was looking at the same school my parents went to Mm -hmm. and the cost was 10x what it was for them for a year i think you know it it was just and i think it caught us off guard a little bit and just the game of financial aid and what we're eligible for it it felt like we were drinking from a fire hose from my perspective felt like we were drinking from a fire hose uh on all the stuff that we had to try and figure out especially because I didn't have a strong conviction on what I wanted to do or where I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. So how did you decide on the school that you finally decided on? It was largely financial. Okay. Yeah. So, so this comes back to the ROTC conversation that, you know, we apl- applied to, you know, five or six schools. I think I got into, I applied to six, got into five and, um, my, my last choice school, which is where my, both my parents went, which is probably just because it's like, oh, I'm not going to go where mom and dad went. It's a great school, Loyola University, Maryland, uh, an awesome place. Ended up having a great experience there. But just because it was so familiar, I was like, oh, I'm not going to go there. But they actually put some money in addition to my ROTC scholarship. They gave some extra money. It kind of sweetened the pot a little bit and made the financials work that much more in its favor. Plus, it was close to home and everything. So um, it ended up being a financial decision. Okay. Um Tell us, what does ROTC stand for? It's a Reserve Officer Training Corps. And when, when was this presented to you um, as an option? And tell my listeners what your obligation was during college and after college. I don't remember when it was presented. I just remember coming home from one of the college fairs and having a packet on this and, and talking to my parents and saying, you know what, this might be a really good path. We'd always had... You know, we, we were Navy uh, fans growing up of, for football, and we'd always had an appreciation. Um, um, my grandfather had been a Marine, and, and we just always had an appreciation for the military and thought this might be a, a thing that I would be interested in. And the more I read about it, the more intriguing it actually was. And the, and the financial part of it was, was very intriguing. So the way it worked out for me was that I applied for a multi-tier scholarship. It could have been, you know, anywhere from one to four years at different levels and everything else. Um but once you were accepted into the program and earned a scholarship, your commitment was that you would do 
um, you know, a couple courses every semester. One was um, military science, learning the basics of the military. You'd wear your uniform. You'd learn military protocol, the fundamentals of the Army. Uh, then you'd have physical training at least once a week. You could do more, um, generally not less, but you could definitely lean in or lean out depending on where you were. Like there were people who did the bare minimum for the first couple of years and then ramped up. I kind of leaned in early and I think got the most out of the program that way, um, which, you know, I can't speak to exactly how it's, you know, there are different nuances to it today. But I think some of that same flexibility exists where you can choose kind of when you enter, how you enter, those types of things, and just how much you want that to be part of your lifestyle all through college. Okay. And when you say you wore your uniform, you didn't wear it every day. No. You had a, you had a pretty normal college experience. Oh, yeah. You yeah. wore street clothing or civilian clothing, mm -hmm. except for you would go to PT, right. which is physical training. Physical training. Um, how many times a week? Once a week. Um, then they, they offered if I wanted to go to airborne school after my sophomore year of um, college, which was like the airborne school at Fort Benning, Georgia. You go and jump out of airplanes five times. Um, that was that was offered to you, but you had to do PT three days a week. You had to do more work. You had to qualify. There was it was competitive. So again, if you wanted to do more, you could get more out of it. So I, I knew people who were both airborne, just jumping out of airplanes, air assault, which is jumping out of helicopters, mountain warfare. There were all sorts of things you could do in the summers between um, your years to just to become more qualified. Mm -hmm. And then what was your obligation post-college? So I, I was committed to four years of active duty and four years of reserve or inactive ready reserve, which is more, I'm a name on a list. They can call me back at any point, but I'm not doing, you know, the one weekend a month drill type of reserve activity. But that was, so much of that is based on needs of the army. And I think this is a, an interesting thing to think about, especially now as we're kind of in a, a low threat, not low threat. It's, there's always a threat out there, but there's no active conflict that's kind of consuming things with Afghanistan having drawn down and some of the things in the Middle East not being as active as they were, you know, 10 years ago. Um, I was in college in the late 90s. And I remember in 1996, which was the summer of my freshman year, the graduating class of ROTC cadets, suddenly with the drawdown in the military, they didn't get active duty commissions, which meant they didn't have a job. They got reserve commissions. They had to go find a job, and the Army was only going to give them part-time mm -hmm. because the Army didn't need that many officers. And then by the time 1999, when I graduated, rolled around, they needed all of us. Everyone got active. You couldn't get reserve right. commissions. So there's, there's always this needs of the Army. It's kind of your first introduction to the Army. There's an accordion effect. It's rapid expansion and rapid contraction. And you just have to be open to that, that you're going to be part of a, a big organization that's, that's moving it at different speeds at different times. Mm -hmm. And I, I liken it to a vocation. Very much. Because um, we have our son is actually pursuing the military path um, for college. And so we're learning this <laughs> um, in present day here. But I really said to my son, I said, you have to think of this as a vocation. You know, like the, there's a saying in the army, if the army wanted you to have a family, they would assign you one. You know, and it's really like you have to go into this saying, I will do whatever Uncle Sam calls me to do. Agree? Yes. But then you start to realize that there are unique benefits. Like if you do this challenging thing for a period of time, usually there's some rewarding assignment on the other side. Like mm -hmm. we, we knew... I stayed in for um, a little over four years active duty, 
friends of mine stayed in for much longer than that and had some great duty assignments, had some amazing educational opportunities, leadership opportunities, and those things are rewarding in their own way, and the families have unique experiences in and around those. Um, but it's just, they're hard to predict, and it's, mm-hmm. you, you don't lay them out uh, like you would, you, like the guidance counselor would lay out. Like, you know, at five years, you're going to be this. At 10 years, you're going to be that. Right. And we, we've had friends that have been separated for, you know, a year at a time. And so yeah. it's it's not for the faint of heart, for sure. No. Um, so... Tell us just briefly where you served and what was your assignment post-college. So you graduate from college as an officer when you go the ROTC route. Right. So you're entering the Army as an officer, um, which means what? Right. So you, I was a um, second lieutenant, uh, and you get a branch assignment. So in the winter before you graduate, based on, for us, based on the quality of your, your work, your grades, your, your, your ratings, everything, a lot of different factors you kind of get a, a ranking and depending on what you pick as a branch. So I chose, you know, for example, you could be infantry or armor or logistics or any, any one of the branches within the military, depending on your strength, the closer you are to getting your top choices. So by usually December or January, in my case, I knew I was going to be air defense artillery, uh, which is Patriot missiles. And I knew that my first duty assignment was going to be to Fort Bliss, Texas, which was the home of air defense artillery. And that was going to be my basic course. So, Immediately upon graduation, I hopped in my Jeep and with one of my classmates drove across the country to El Paso, Texas, where Fort Bliss is located. And we started, gosh, I think it was a six-week or eight-week officer basic course, which was everything more fundamentals of leadership, army, kind of indoctrination. It's kind of like college with a paycheck. It was actually pretty fun. Um, And you start learning a little bit about your branch. After that, you get your follow-on assignment which this is another thing you kind of you have to be you have to be really flexible with these things you know when i got to fort bliss we all thought that you could go to a patriot missile unit in fort lewis washington or fort bragg north carolina or you know around the country somewhere somewhere else and somewhere in the first couple weeks we started picking up on the fact that it sounds like everybody's really close to el paso come to find out just in the last year they had brought all the patriot missile units back to fort bliss and all of us were going three blocks away for our follow-on assignments so i was going to be at fort bliss in the long term uh, which which ended up being great. I loved El Paso and, and the Southwest and everything, um, but it also meant kind of hopping from one desert to another as we moved from El Paso to the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Um, so you kind of get those, and then after your officer basic course, you move on to your first unit, and that's when you know you really are dropped into a leadership role. In many cases, as a as a platoon leader in a unit within your branch, and uh, and the leadership journey begins. So. You were at this point, what, 22 years old? Yes. And when you say leadership, about how many soldiers did you have under you? Do you remember? 30 plus. Okay. So right away out of college, you were leading a small, what would be company, you know what I mean? It's bigger than the company that you have currently. You know, like Right, right. Well, not, not to, not to, well, you got to be careful with the word company. Because right, you get, you're complaining. <laughs> we, no, we were in, in artillery, it's batteries. So okay. I, I was assigned to a Patriot missile battery, which had... From, it was like 80 to 90 soldiers uh, involved. And I had a maintenance platoon, which handled all of the vehicles, heavy and light vehicles for the unit. And we had 30 plus soldiers. The interesting part about that was there were three batteries within a Patriot unit. Two of them were specific to 
Patriot missiles. There was the fire control, which is pressing the button and making the missile shoot, the launcher platoons, which is maintaining the launchers downrange, and then maintenance. And maintenance was like, it was mechanics, it was people who were mechanically inclined. If there's one thing that I knew about myself at that stage of life at 22 years old was I was not mechanically inclined. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't go in and say, you know, and you know, those fateful words from any second lieutenant, in my experience, mm -hmm. I couldn't say that. I had to really lean on my non-commissioned officers, on my um, platoon sergeant, my, my staff sergeants, and a lot of people who'd been, I mean, these were men and women who, this is late 1999. These are men and women. Many of them were Gulf War One vets. They'd been back and forth from the Middle East in the 90s many, many times. I and mean, we think of the 90s as being a very quiet period. But Patriot missile units were constantly going to the Middle East and back. Every time there were sabers rattling, they would jump on a plane and they'd fly to Kuwait. They'd fly to Saudi Arabia. They'd fly to Israel or wherever they might be. And so these were some really experienced people. I mean, you talk about how green I was at the time. They taught me a ton. I learned to be really humble because as much as I knew about history and, and not much else, I, I couldn't parlay that into, you know, in anything meaningful until I understood them, understood the mission and everything else. So it was, it was a really impactful time. And um, so do you feel like you found your leadership style in those early years or do you think it's developed over the years or tell us about your leadership style? I don't know if it's a. I don't know if it's a leadership style. I'd be hard pressed to define necessarily what that is, but I think there's definitely a perspective. Um, you know, one is what I just said that there are always people vigilantly on the watch. Like, you know, we're sitting here on vacation right now, recording this podcast, blissfully unaware of what's happening in the world. But you know, I, I kind of emerged out of this isolated collegiate environment to land in an area we, we were by the, we hit the ground in I think I got to my unit in November of 1999 and we knew that we were going to Saudi Arabia in the spring of 2000 or in the spring of 2000 so I think March April of 2000 so within six months I was going to be in Saudi Arabia on an active mission and you just like oh my gosh this has been happening for these these units every two or three years they've been going over here for a decade mm -hmm. and I had no idea and that just that vigilance you become aware of it and it builds into your rhythm where you're just like, nothing surprises you. Everything's just kind of like, if it happens, we're going to deal with it. We're going to, we're going to muscle through it. The mission's going to continue. And there were some, there were some beautiful moments of, of leadership where I'd say, man, I really saw great leadership in action. There were some really ugly times where stuff just went sideways and non-wartime stuff, just even things that you would see inside a company, a, a business mm -hmm. in the civilian world and you just start gaining perspective and not taking things for granted and I think I've carried that into my civilian life pretty well yeah and if there's one thing about Dennis it is anywhere he goes since I've known him we've been married almost 20 years anywhere we go he would love to just sit and take things in maybe enjoy for a little bit he's usually asked to, to run the entire thing within a very short period of time. Um, you know, he's just, he really, I think you're a natural born leader, but I, I think the army probably really forced you to hone those skills and you took that into the civilian world um, and really just used it 
for a lot of different opportunities. I mean, Dennis has, he's run everything from the CYO at our parish before we even had children <laughs> to, um, say I was wise. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, he just retired as president of our local boy scout council. Um, he runs the finance committee for the diocese where we live, like, and you run your own company. <laughs> yeah. Know, but, like, all right. Here, but here's, here's the thing. And this, to, to bring it back, this is all, all well and good, but to bring it back to the value of the ROTC experience, is that for the first couple of years, I was pretty convinced that there were all these other people doing this that knew stuff that I didn't, and then there was me, and I didn't have a good, I didn't have a sense of, um, I didn't know how to shoot, I didn't know how to uh, march, I didn't know how to lead. There were many things, many skills that I didn't have that I was envious of others who had them. And it wasn't until I was dropped into the real army that I realized I didn't need all of those things. They weren't all valuable. That it was really a sense of curiosity, humility, um, being willing to lean on the people who did know around me. Mm-hmm. And that that was a great, great experience because I, I see too many leaders who are absolutely convinced they need to be the smartest person in the room. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm just, I, I'm not. I didn't know that. Like I went to in between your your junior year and senior year, and I believe this is still the case. Now, in my in my instance, we went to Fort Lewis, Washington, for four or five weeks of training, and it's you're evaluated, and it's where you pick start thinking about your branch, and they um, you really get immersed in in this um, this experience for rising seniors, all ROTC cadets, and I remember thinking at that time that every single one of these men and women knows more about what they're getting into than I do. Like, I still remember asking uh, one of my fellow cadets next to me who had been an enlisted soldier prior to becoming ROTC. And I asked him, you know, in the army, do you get weekends off? (laughs) And he looked at me cross-eyed. He's like, of course you do. Like, it's just, it's a regular job unless it's not a regular time. And sometimes you have missions and other things that you're doing. But I had no earthly idea what I was getting into. And I just... At one point, I just started asking more questions, leaning into it, and um, I don't think it's a natural-born leadership thing. And I think that's one of the things that I would encourage people to not think is that only natural-born leaders can succeed in that type of environment. I think I definitely evolved and found my, I would say, more of an authentic leadership than a natural-born leadership is mm-hmm. what I what I learned. And how? So now you're running with your. You have a business partner. Um, you run your own. Um, financial advisory firm. How are you using those skills that you learned as a young officer to work with your clients today? I think it comes back to a very important intersection in my career, one that you were very, I was very blessed to have you involved in. Um, when I left the army, what I thought I had learned was just general leadership slash management. I could go work for a company, run an operation, and be pretty successful at it because I had kind of done stuff like that. Um, so we moved to the Lehigh Valley of Pennsylvania. I took a job in management, and for two years we hated it. <laughs> it, it, it paid it was well. Miserable. I was progressing nicely, and I, I thought about you know, if, if we continue down this path and I'm successful, we are successfully going to be miserable because yeah. I didn't like it at all. So I, and you knew I didn't like it. 
So and I, you didn't have children yet. Right, right. And I didn't want to be married to somebody that hated their job because I felt like it's too long of a life to hate your job. Yeah, yeah. So I had this discernment period where I thought, what am I going to do? And, I, I, and you even told me, you could go back to the military if you wanted. Like we were open to yeah. going back in. I thought just, I would be a good military wife. You would have. Um, but I, I thought about it and I don't remember when it dawned on me, but I, I just thought about the skills that had worked for me. Like what, what was recognized, I advanced pretty well in the military, I was given responsibilities above my rank and pay grade. And it was I kind of got to sit around the table, especially as we were going, ramping up for the war in 2003, got to some exposure to some leadership that really was, was above where I was at that time. And I thought, why was I put in those positions? What was I doing well? And how does that translate into the civilian world? And the best way that it made sense to me was um, in the Patriot missile world, I'd be out in the middle of the desert. We're a very kind of niche part of the military. It's very little understood. We're not part of every unit. People don't know kind of what we do. But we'd be parked out in the middle of the desert, in the middle of the night, kind of monitoring the skies for missiles, enemy aircraft, other things with these missile defense systems and a general or a colonel or somebody with a bird or a star on their hat would roll out in a Humvee and they would expect me as a, as a lieutenant, a young lieutenant or captain to walk out and say, sir or ma'am, um, this is the situation. And we had this massive technical manual that they didn't understand, I'm sure, and a tactical manual that didn't even make sense to us. And I would have to brief them on what our situation was because they had a hundred other decisions to make sense of in the course of that night. I had to be very concise, give them the information they needed to know so they could go about making good decisions. And if I could do that effectively, then they could do their job better. And I really enjoyed that and communication skills wise, that's the liberal arts major coming through. Um, I could communicate well and I thought, what can I do in the civilian world that would capitalize on that? And one of the experiences I'd had was a very poor experience with a financial advisor when I was in the military. And I always thought that's something that I could do better. There was something I would have done differently. I'd been burned a little bit. So I thought, what if I became a financial advisor and applied that same consultative advisory skill set that I used in the military and applied it here? And it was kind of just a seedling of an idea. But with the benefit of hindsight, it's blossomed. It's absolutely, and that, that's what I use it for now is that, you know, my, the families that I serve and with my partner and my team and, and everyone else, when someone comes to us with a question about the world around them or just kind of in doubt, wondering, you know, they have a million decisions to make in their business, their family, everything else. I can't regurgitate to them the entire Wall Street Journal or every note on CNBC and all the other stuff. I need to sift through to say, you need to worry about this and safely ignore everything else and you're going to be fine. And I think that's been a very, very effective way to lead an effective way to have an impact on people's finances and on their the health of their family life. I think we're doing a good job of that. Um, so I, again, bring it back to the ROTC experience. I think it took what I already was and amplified that via leadership to becoming even better at what I am in a civilian, as a civilian. Mm -hmm. And um, do you think you would make that decision again today? Do in a heartbeat. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I, I still don't know what I would do. If you, if you flash me back to 18 years old or even 21 years old, 
I didn't know that th this profession existed. And frankly, I don't think it did. In very rare exceptions, it did. My business, the financial advisory business, was a different animal in the 90s. You know, I, I still remember my, my, um, my, the officer in charge of my basic course was trading you know, tech stocks at, during lunch break you know, on a you know, 1999 computer. And I thought, I guess that's what finance is. But it was a different world. Um, I needed kind of an evolution to get to here, but I wouldn't have known what to, what to do. So I needed the, I needed the skills that were then applicable to something else before mm -hmm. I get there. And I've met so many other veterans and people who've been through the ROTC programs who are doing everything from medical devices to finance to teaching to, you know, law, whatever it might be. And it just gave them a very unique and applicable skill set. Mm -hmm. And so what would you say to the parents that are listening if they have a high school junior, senior? Um, is this something that you would encourage them to look at for their child? Or what, what type of a student would you say should consider this path to go to college? I think students who have leadership potential, who have shown that they can, whether they were effective, you and I were both um, both athletes and speech and debate people, which is kind of an interesting thing. <laughs> you know, if, if you happen to have someone who's you know a, a young athlete or is doing speech and debate or showing leadership in clubs or you know academically inclined or something like that, but isn't necessarily sure what they want to do or they feel like they have a mm -hmm. they're, they're discerning this particular vocation, I would encourage it. And again, I'm 45 years old, still pretty young, right. I would think. How old were we when I got out? I think I was 25. I was 27 when we got married. Yes, so I, I, was tw I was just turning 26. How young were we back then? I know, right? You know, I mean, it, it was it was a short stint of four years, and there's risks involved. I mean, we yeah, I, he did go to war. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it, it's <laughs> that was very very scary. And it's and it's so I would definitely do it again, but I wouldn't base my decision. One thing I would caution against is basing that decision off what's happening in the world right now mm -hmm. to say, you know, in the late nineties, again, it was general peacetime. There weren't that, there weren't armed conflicts that we were actively engaged in. It wasn't, it wasn't like you're going to sign up and they're immediately shipping, shipping off to somewhere. But for my generation of 1999 graduation year, we were all the 9-11 generation. I mean, I was on alert on Tuesday morning, September 11th, to deploy overseas and spent the next 18 months waiting to go before we actually did. Mm -hmm. And that defined the first year of our dating, Right. Is, is that experience. So it was a very different time when I left than when I came in. And you just have to be clear-eyed about that those things can happen. And the, and the opposite can be true, too. So I just think it's a, a matter of... Um, you know, it's, it's a way to really be exposed to some of the best leadership um, education training that, that you can get. And, uh, and I would certainly advocate for it. Yeah. And if you stay in, it really can be a wonderful life. You know, I just ran into a family yesterday at the grocery store here. Um, we're in Slovenia right now. And the family I, I ran into, clearly Americans. And I said, oh, are you are you guys on holiday? And they said, you know, they're military, they're Air Force, and they're from Germany. And it really, I mean, we've got friends that have really given their children mm -hmm. a wonderful view of the world, mm -hmm. um, wonderful experiences. So I, I definitely think it's something if, um, 
you think college is out of um, your financial uh, budget right now, this is definitely a path to consider. Um, it's not just about the tuition and we are not um, up to date on what ROTC is um, financially right now. We are going to learn that in the next few months ourselves as our son um, explores this path as well. But um, for Dennis, it really it was a wonderful win-win financially and as far as the leadership experience that he gained. Um, do you want to say what, how much debt you graduated with? I think I ended up with, uh, I had about $12,000. About 12000 yeah. And now remember when we were married, I, I was working full time. So once they raised the interest rates, yeah. um, I think we were paying maybe 100 bucks a month or something. And then once, once they raised those interest rates, we were like, okay, forget this. And we, we paid it off. Um, and I really do believe that that has set us up for the, the freedom of debt really has set us up for the path that you were able to eventually quit the job that you hated. <laughs> right, right, right. And, and jump in the, the financial advisor role and then eventually um, start your own firm. Mm -hmm. I really think that we owe a lot of it to the Army. Yeah. Can I tell one of my favorite stories? Sure. Okay. All right. <laughs> And maybe, maybe this will be the, the close. I don't know. Okay. But I, I just think one of, the, one of the things about military culture is it's a culture of promotion. It's a culture of taking 22-year-olds and putting them in positions where 22-year-olds, 18-year-olds, 30-year-olds in positions where um, they can you know, exceed above their expectations and learn and grow. And um, everyone's always looking to promote the next person. That's what I found is that it's a very, um, I, I don't know, it's a great culture in that regard. My first exposure to that was I had a tiered scholarship. So I received, at the end of high school, I applied for it. I received a three-year, $5,000 scholarship, which is not exactly what I was looking for. It meant I had no scholarship from the Army for my freshman year. But the expectation was I would probably do all the activities, just not get paid for it. And then my last three years, I would have $5,000. Um, so I went in, and I was excited, and it was it was good. I, I went, to my, went to Loyola and uh, started there in, in 1995 and um i did all the pt i showed up for all the military science classes met a great um crew of cadets there had a good experience sophomore year i did the same thing started getting the um a stipend got the scholarship uh which was still less than the tuition for sure at loyola and i had, had some other money coming in from them as well um but i was leaning into going to airborne school so putting in extra work and succeeding in the program and then one day in January of 1997, this must have been, middle of my sophomore year, after a morning PT session, um, one of the cadet instructors pulled me aside and said, Cadet Morton, let me talk to you for a minute. He said, um, by the way, based on your academics and your track record in the ROTC program, we went ahead and resubmitted your scholarship packet to the Army, and you now have a full scholarship retroactive to your freshman year. So I got to call my parents and give them that news, <laughs> which is pretty wild. Yeah. And, uh, but those types of things, I mean, it was happening just all the time. People looking out for you saying, you're doing a good job and here's, you know, here's how it shows up for you. Mm -hmm. And we just continue to see those kinds of special moments happening to ourselves and others um, as they kind of 
move their way uh, onward and upward through the system. So a big thank you. That was a that was a huge blessing on our yeah, life. Yeah, but I think it's day. also a reminder that even if your child isn't doing the, the military route, that even if you don't get a, a bunch of scholarships your freshman year, keep reapplying. Like yep. what they offer you is not the end of the road. So, you know, I hate to say it this way, but it's almost like your child is a product and the university is a product and you're negotiating. So keep going back to them, play one school against the other. And in hindsight, you know, I told the story of how my, my first choice was the University of New Hampshire and I'd gotten a full scholarship from the state school that I ended up going to. Well, if I was a little bit more educated on the process, I should have taken that full scholarship and presented it to the University of New Hampshire and said, hey, I, they, this school's giving me this. Um, so I think the Dennis's story is a good one. Just to remind you, like, just don't accept their first offer. You know, keep going back. Keep, and just like Kara Walker, and the scholarship um, strategist that I had on a few weeks ago, you know, go dive deeper into your field. You know, as you b become a junior or senior in college and you're diving deeper into the, the core of the curriculum that you're studying, go there looking for scholarships that maybe weren't even available to you as a freshman or sophomore. So I think that's one of the things we've learned as we're going through this process with our son is like just keep keep knocking on that door um and you know keep negotiating any final words of advice for the parents listening i think so one of the things my cousin uh was a marine and our son wants to be a marine and just from the mommy point of view you know my cousin said to me he's like how do you feel about your son wanting to be a Marine? And I said, what am I going to do? It's what he's called to do. And I think this is a, this is a different option that I'm presenting you today. It's a very scary option. Um, if it's not a peacetime with the United States, but like I said, I, I think it's a vocation and there's stories like my husband's where it just kind of was like, oh, okay, this is an option. Then there's stories like my son where it's like, his first grade parent-teacher conference, the teacher said to me, I can see him going to an academy. And I was like, me too. <laughs> like, our son has always been about the military. And it's probably because of Dennis. Um, you know, we've, he's grown up with it more than I grew up with it. You know, our son, I mean, has grown up with it more than we grew up with it. Um, so as a mom, I think um, you just pray that your kids are making the right decision. You pray for their safety. But it's also, you know ultimately not our decision and we just have to support the one that they make and the, if they're following God's will for their lives then then we know it's the right path anything else I it seems like a big commitment but I also see people who are my age now who made equally big commitments to professions that they don't like right and I, I think for for the four years of active duty and the discernment that happened and the growth that happened it set me in a better, I was in a better place to make a career decision at 26 than I was at 21. And I didn't have the financial burden mm -hmm. that of other people did and the inability to make a different decision. Right. So I really, I, I, there are probably other ways I could have arrived here, but I'm very grateful for the flexibility it provided me to make a better decision at 26 than I would have made at 18 or 22. Mm -hmm. Very good. All right. Thank you so much for for making your uh, sure. debut on Pruning to Prosper. Anytime. Do you want to tell us about your podcast? 
Do you have a podcast? <laughs> you want to plug it? I, I'll, sure, I'll plug it. <laughs> Go ahead. Sure. Our podcast is called Simply Why. It's a podcast about money and purpose where my partner Katie Brown and I talk about um, what we've observed in, in years of, of financial advisory relationships, of, of couples and their relationships with money, and uh, trying to figure out how people communicate and can make for stronger couple relationships where money is a meaningful contributor to their success and not a cause for friction. And uh, so I, th I think it's, it's an exciting topic we just launched last week and looking forward to more episodes coming up. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. Have a great day. I love you. We do. Bye.